Buzz normally means the show's over and we can go home. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. Um, a very appropriate full house and round of applause for Peter Brook, who is here to uh, discuss his career and, most specifically, his most uh, recent book, The Quality of Mercy, Reflections on Shakespeare. Before we talk about the book, the, um, this building we're in, the, the job of artistic director has just been advertised. They're, um, <laughs> they're, um, they're, they're looking for a new one. So would you, um, would you like to throw your hat into the ring? I don't think the present artistic director can be improved on, so I wouldn't <laughs> dream of it. <laughs> the, um, the serious side of that is that probably, if, almost certainly, if you had stayed in Britain, there would have been an expectation that you would run the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre, perhaps even both, as two people have. Um, so it, that's it, why I, I was going to say. That's why I got out of that is, that is why you left. <laughs> No, I mean, I think that you have to want to go in a certain direction, which is perfectly good. But I wanted, having done a lot in so many conditions, to explore other conditions. And al although um, many of your productions from Paris have come to Britain, um, mm -hmm. it's a long time since you actually originated work in Britain, particularly Shakespeare. Have there been offers over the years from the National or, or, or the RSC? Not that I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> Do you regret that? No, I'm, I go by each specific thing when it happens. And on the point of um, going specifically, um, I counted up at the, at the back, there's a helpful chronology of your Shakespeare productions. Oh and I God. think you've, um, I wouldn't say only, but you, you've directed 13 of the um, Shakespeare plays. Oh. Probably with, I mean, certainly uh, Peter Hall, Trevor Nunn, it would be very many more than that. Oh, much more, yes. Um, is, was, that, was there a small core of plays that you wanted by Shakespeare to work on? Well, I've never, ever tried to do things according to a prearranged pattern and an idea that if, you know, I've done, I admire enormously after Shakespeare Chekhov, and I've staged one Chekhov play, and people at once say, but then why don't you do this one and that? I've never thought in that way. Always this is an intuitive choice. At any given moment, there are a mass of things one could do, and an even greater mass of suggestions from friends. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And when I do something, when I did Carmen, for instance, at once, why have you done Carmen? What can one answer? That there is, in front of these choices, there is an intuition, which you can't explain, but a feeling that at this moment, and I think that's all that matters, at this moment, this particular play, if you can succeed in bringing it to life, would be appropriate for now. That's all. And that, that means that some plays will get away. So, for, for example, Othello, um, of which a, a tremendous yeah. production has just opened here in the National Theatre, which I think you're going to see. Tomorrow, yeah. with great yeah, anticipation. Mm. But, th but that has always, that has eluded you as a director. It eluded, yes, because I've often thought of it, even with certain plays have come close to a moment when it could be done, and then the conjuncture of things didn't fall into place, and that's it. No regrets. That moment has passed. 
you take um, in the quality of mercy um, reflections on Shakespeare, one particular reflection is increasingly controversial in modern culture. Um, you suggest provocatively that the plays of Shakespeare were written by William Shakespeare. <laughs> well, there is something that is now well known as the loony fringe. <laughs> and all the different arguments, I, I don't want to talk what's in the book and nobody will buy the book and read it. <laughs> but the one thing that I think that I could repeat, to me, this is very much the principle of lawyers, that a criminal lawyer, someone comes to him, somebody is now, for instance, at this moment, it's happening all the time, somebody is caught out by the government deep in embezzlement, so he rushes to the top lawyer and says, will you take on my case? If the lawyer is an honest man, which we hope's the case, he knows perfectly well that the chances are that his client is guilty. And this happens with murder cases, this was the O.J. Simpson case, I mean, the lawyer knows perfectly well, but his role is like an actor playing the part of a villain, an actor playing Richard III, he has to defend with everything at his disposal. And this is the tragic absurdity of this whole Shakespeare loony, is that once somebody started it, now each new client, and I think there are 70 or 80 at the moment, perhaps more, each time somebody takes up their cause and then, like the lawyer, they have to search for, go through documents, go through dossiers, to search, to build up a case, and then the more that's built up, somebody else in another university, no doubt, with his students says, we are going to find them, so they plunge even deeper, and so it's become an industry, and it's self-perpetuating. But if one comes back to the simple common sense fact, it hasn't a leg to stand on, it's just too absurd, but it serves now, it's what one really calls a vested interest. It is a vast industry, and it serves so many people's purposes that it's kept going. But in fact, why? I mean, the root of it is there are two things that can bring many other aspects, but the fact that so much time went by before this was questioned, and that what it touched on in the 19th century in England was the deep, deep ingrained sense of social snobbery, so that it, although you respect there was only one Shakespeare, but that one Shakespeare must have been a man of the upper classes and of good education. How could that lout from a grammar school have done it? And that's what it was all about, pure, pure social snobbery. As you mentioned in the book, um, for people who have followed the um, uh, anti-Stratfordians. Uh, one of them was actually called Looney, wasn't he? Um, Looney, too. Thomas Looney, it. although he insisted yeah. it was pronounced Looney because people, um, <laughs> oh, people mocked him course. so much. Yes, well, there, again, you could start a whole university <laughs> series of two universities trying to prove what, what was the right pronunciation of Looney. <laughs> Looney. You mentioned you're going to see uh, Nicholas Hine, his production of Othello. In the program for that, you will discover yeah. there's a lecture that he gave um, called The Actor is the Solution, in which he argues that Shakespeare's plays, the problems in them, are solved not in the classroom, but in the rehearsal room and in performance. And you, your book uh, 
comes to the same conclusion, that it's, um, you say, if we want to understand problems as we see them with characters, it's an actor who will solve those problems or a director. No, I don't say that, that they will be solved, but I think that these aren't ideas and abstractions. It's only in the effort, the trial and error, and the deep effort of bringing these characters off the printed page and into immediate convincing life, the proof of the pudding lies. I've got to pick a couple of things out of the book. I promise okay. you it will only make people want to buy the book even more because um, we see them as like a trailer in the cinema. It will make them ah. want to go and um, get one. But well, they're called teasers. Teasers, yes. Well, here, here's a good teaser. You give some very precise advice in certain cases in Shakespeare. One of them I was very struck by, don't make King Lear too frail too early. There's been a tendency in some recent productions that he has Alzheimer's in the opening scene or he's very, very weak. You, you, you think that's a mistake? Well, I read the other day somebody saying that obviously he can't have been in his right mind to carve up, these were the words, carve up his kingdom. And this seems to me the exact opposite of what's there in the play. That in the play, here is a man who reaches the age, I mean, I'm at the age of King Lear, and you're saying, would I want to do a new Shakespeare production? <laughs> and if I had a national theater, I would be now not only withdrawing, but looking for successors, knowing that if you pick this one, it's going to make that one angry. And so you see that a man of tremendous power, who has clearly never had a problem in all his reign with his authority challenged, sees that he has three daughters, he knows from long experience that if you ever have two and anything, it's like two people in a House of Parliament they're at once on opposing sides, and that if you have three, you can make a balance, but if he can divide this between three daughters, there's a balance, and that he owes it to his daughters to do something about it, and at the same time, the division into three is reasonable and harmonious and that goes wrong. But if King Lear himself isn't a man, and this is, I think, the same in all Greek tragedies, if your tragic hero isn't somebody of tremendous richness, power, and consequence, how the hell can be you interested for three hours to see, <laughs> watch his decline? In Lear, his decline is also a passage of self-knowledge and of revelation of his understanding on all levels, what interest is to see the gradual self-knowledge and the tremendous richness of experience of this doddering old man, doddering old man thrown out into the storm. I mean, to begin with, he shouldn't survive it. He should just pass out and leave the fool to take over. That would be a new version of the play and very good. <laughs> Oh, no, that doesn't make sense. You have to have a strong, a strong pillar for its fall to be something that really touches us. Something else about King Lear, which you don't address in the book, but it struck me, the, the, the common tendency certainly has been to cast actors of 60, 70. Derek Jacobi was 75, I think, but he played it recently. Um, it is astonishing. Paul Schofield was 40, wasn't he, when yes. you did your... Was that... Did that seem extraordinary at the time? 
Not at all. I mean, I think he was, Paul had that capacity. Actually, the first play I did with him, second play, was Lady from the Sea, where he already played the old drunken husband of the Lady from the Sea, and he was oh, 22. So for him, <laughs> with that extraordinary rock-like gnarled face, he could play any age. But he certainly needed all of his vitality. And the first condition that he made with Stratford was, I can play King Lear, I would love to do this, but I will never play it six nights in a row. And that had to be the condition because he knew that even at his age, the concentration and the stamina and the energy, and there was this production of Declan Donnellan, do you remember, with an actor of 22. That marvelous actor, um, Albert Hughes. Hmm? Yes, Nonza ah. was just marvelous at 22. Mm. No, I mean, an, this is an actor's job is to make, that's why an actor can play where Adrian, Adrian Lester, now playing a fellow, but how marvelous he was as Rosalind. Mm. And what has he, and the face value to play Rosalind, except the real art of conviction of an actor finding the absolute reality of the image, and but it isn't an outside image. You know, but there is well, these three stages of actors. There is the impersonating, where you have an idea, you think of the person, and then the actor does this by Oh, externally, making themselves fit, or with the art of caricature, you impersonate. And then it goes one stage farther, which one talks about with actors in rehearsal, and you talk about an actor you've seen. I remember Michel Saint-Denis, when he was at Stratford with Peter Hall and myself, always speaking about the fact that that person is inhabiting, or not inhabiting, and that is something way impersonating is on the facade, inhabiting is within. And then you get to the rarest level of all, which is an incarnation. That is the absolute, that when it actually enters into every fiber of the flesh, and that once in a generation you can see that act of incarnation of the great role but inhabit is already pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, a story you mentioned in the book which it was quite startling and may um, reassure, I think there may be a number of actors in. It's not that you can tell actors from looking at them, but when I was sitting in the coffee bar, a lot of people were talking about auditions and so on, so I think there may be some actors in. But you tell a very um, reassuring story, perhaps, which is that the first preview of, of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which became and remains uh, one of the most celebrated Shakespeare productions, um, it appeared to be a disaster, that production. Oh, complete disaster. Complete. <laughs> and thank God for it, because it, we were just beginning it with a sort of new thing, such as long rehearsals, improvisations, these which are now accepted were new things. And the principle of previews that I grew up in this horror, I still have a horror of first nights, and I do everything for the sake of all of us, and particularly for the actors, in our theater in Paris, to 
disguise the fact that it's the first performance. We go slowly into it and have more audience coming in and more audience, and then put the press over two weeks so that you never have that thing which I saw and had seen the horrors of on Broadway above all, where this is the break or make night, which is cruel because everyone agrees. And it's one of the things I saw that Meyerhold wrote, where he said, 50 performances is the first curve before what you, and there they would rehearse for two years even, but before you get to the point when through playing 50 times, you're just getting to the point when you say, ah, now it's in shape. I say this to say that the preview was something that was an innovation, and thank God for it, because the first preview, we had done a lot of work, and a lot of it, many experimental looking for different forms, and suddenly going from a rehearsal room, as it was in those days, into the big space, and it wasn't working. I mean, it did to a degree, but unsatisfyingly. And that gave us a hectic week or 10 days of a nonstop reworking, 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 and it could come to life. But again, um, sometimes, I think it's notorious in theatre, some, some directors, other directors, friends, when they give notes, it's quite nebulous. But John Barton gave you a fantastically specific note on that, which was that the opening of the production did not prepare the audience for what yes. was, was to follow. Him with one line that changed everything, I thought of it, but he's quite right, and we changed completely the way it opened, and the opening clearly made the audience feel the direction it was all going to take. We'll open it up to the audience um, in a moment. There, there are little hints of... Um, biography of autobiography in this book, and one of them surprised me that... Oh, Lord. No, the um, <coughs> little recurrence of, uh, of Roman Catholic uh, shrines. You, you say at one point you went to Lourdes when you were growing up, the um, mm -hmm. shrine there, Shop St. Bernadette. You went to uh, Seville during Holy Week. I, I was... But it's never explained why. We, it wasn't a formal pilgrimage, presumably. What, how did that happen? Thank God. Over the years, I've been in mosques, I've been in front of great Buddhas, I've certainly, I've actually been inside the Vatican, but never, oh yes, and I actually was once with Robert Morley, can you imagine a strange company, nobody here remembers who Robert Morley was. Some people do, I think. Yes. I had an audience with the Pope. An which, audience with the Pope. Which one, was, Paul VI? No, Pius. Pious. Yes. Yeah. And I was in Rome, and they said, we're, he and an English actor, Scottish actor, said, we've got an audience with the Pope tomorrow. Would you like to come? <laughs> <laughs> and Robert Morley said, look, um, I'm sure that when he sees you, he's going to say, Robert, I've seen your films. You must come to tea with the wife. <laughs> <laughs> and we went into this private audience, and the private audience was like looking out at this that we're about. 50 people lined up against the wall. We thought it was sitting as talking the way we do. And it was splendidly theatrical. So, I mean, if I quote different things, I can quote this as a piece of great theater because we stood, we got there early, and we stood like that against the wall, waiting and waiting. And every now and then, 
a cardinal came in, and there was a moment of suspense, and he would just go to one of the great windows <laughs> and drew a blind and would go out again. <laughs> and then another cardinal would come slightly different tempo, slightly more gently, <laughs> but slowly draw another. And of course, the suspense rose. <laughs> and the Scottish actor, and one of those lapses of memory, I can't remember his name, but it'll come back to me. Anyhow, it's unimportant. He had said, I refuse, because he was not a Catholic, of course, to treat, I refuse to go on my knees when I see the Pope, but I will bow to him as one would to royalty. So we were still standing there. More curtains were drawn. <laughs> and the suspense really got very, very great in this now darkened big hall. And then suddenly, a super cardinal rushed in and did that <laughs> at such speed that everyone dropped on their knees, <laughs> including my Presbyterian friend. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, when we raised our eyes, the Pope was going round from one to the other. <laughs> just before we um, take questions, there is... Um, it's a, it's a big part of the book, so we'll just have a tiny little teaser of it, but um, the speaking, and again, might be reassuring oh, yeah. to actors in the <laughs> audience because um, there are certain actors, we, uh, certain directors, we won't name them, who actually be, keep the beat with a pen oh, in, re oh, in rehearsal oh. in the iambic pentameter. Um, you are on the very opposite side of that oh, yes. debate. Well, for, I mean, what one needs is to see that in a great writer, a great poet. I don't think there's a great poet who starts with saying to himself, dum, 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 and then does it like a crossword puzzle. It's the other way around. He has words and images and strong feelings like a composer, and out of that comes a moment when the word, the rhythm, the flow, and the thought are all part of one thing and he puts it down, and then maybe he corrects it, and maybe that's how it stays. Now, we have to go through a similar process and try by work quietly, attentively, in an intimate way, and then with others, to find the essential meaning, and that isn't an intellectual meaning, it's the meaning within the context of the play at that moment. And from that, gradually, you see, that's where an actor is very foolish, if he says, ah, now I just say it the way I would. That's not what it's about. It's the way of faith finding at that moment the way that character is expressing something that can't be expressed in any other way. And at that moment, you discover that the shape of the words, the sound of the words, the musical thing, the rhythm, the shape of the line, the break and the renewal of the rhythm are part of the actual vital meaning of that passage. So then you can do it. But if you start from the outside and say now, and this happens all the time in opera, and that's why I've had a pro all my life this fight with opera and in the same way with opera teachers who are like these university professors, these opera teachers who start a great role by sitting at a piano, and on the very first day, before the deep meaning, the relation with the words and the subject has been discovered, are saying, no, 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 that's a quaver. 
well, you can't do that with Shakespeare either. Mm. No, and you give uh, an example of a line you give, what, what is perhaps one of the hardest lines in Shakespeare, uh, King Lear's never, 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 mm. never. But curiously, you say, it does actually, it, it is an iambic pentameter oh, line. Yes. And yet, if the actor you just mentioned said, I'll just say it as I would say it, mm. you don't get very far, do you? No, no, no. Well, that's why I say that when Paul Schofield did that, every single performance was different, not because he tried to make it different, but that line comes out of the whole of four acts or more, I think, of the play. And if you've been living them, when you come to that point, that night, your experience of the whole story is renewed. And so obviously, at that moment, you're never, never, is not the night before when it was never, 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 and so on, because you aren't thinking of how to say it or what it should be like. You're finding it in the channel of that living experience you've been through. My last question before we open it up. Um, you're a companion of honor, among other things, in Britain. And um, according to a newspaper a couple of weeks ago, it said that all companions of honor had been invited to Baroness Thatcher's funeral. So was that Ooh. true, and did you go? I wasn't. Well, that's a scandal. Holy <laughs> <in the> day. <laughs> Outrageous. <laughs> Not a word. <laughs> but Would you know, they that I'm not going to say whether I would have accepted because <laughs> I had my only with real things. It wasn't the only thing, but they are very cunning in those things. And obviously they got together and they said, look, this is dangerous. He might refuse. Better say he's abroad and we don't know where to find Thank you very much. Um, I'm really sorry. We, we, this theatre has to transform into people by Alan Bennett. So... Um, uh, there is a, another chance to talk to uh, Peter Brook, where you'll have to uh, buy a copy of the book, or at least pretend to. Um, and uh, he will be signing copies in the Littleton um, Circle bookshop. Uh, thank you very much to all of you, and, most, and most specifically to Peter Brook. Thank you. Thank you very much.